Fill her up. You're listening to the Gas Digital Network. What up, what up, what up, podcast party people. How you doing, man? It's been a crazy week, right? It's been a goddamn crazy fucking week. So if you weren't doing good, I can understand that. It's been fucking crazy. It's been some wild shit out there. We woke up to the news on Saturday that Taylor Hawkins, the Foo Fighters, had passed away. And uh, actually, somebody, a friend of mine told me that night on Friday night. But uh, it was like right before I was going to bed, and I was like, what? I didn't even know if it was real. I was kind of drunk. And uh, yeah, what a bummer, right? What a crazy, dude, I was so stunned when I woke up that Saturday morning and like my phone was just blowing up as soon as I turned it on and uh, because I've always put it on airplane airplane mode to go to bed when any motherfuckers texting me all night and uh, uh, it was just so shocking. It's shocking, man. Like, and I don't, you know, it shouldn't be shocking, but. It was just fucking shocking. And then Monday is like the fucking, the slap heard around the world, the Will Smith, you know, nicest guy fucking in the world, guy Will Smith, and fucking slaps Chris Rock. I'll get into that in a minute, but I, uh, you know, I don't really have any stories about Taylor Hawkins. I met him very briefly, uh, just recently, um, we were on tour for the final tour of the Catharsis, uh, the final tour that Phil and Dave were in the band for. So they had quit, but then we had, Phil and Dave had quit, but then we had did a tour because they quit like a week before the tour was starting. So we went and did the tour. And uh, and somewhere on the tour, we, we were playing Milwaukee, and then Metallica was playing Milwaukee, and then Foo Fighters were playing Milwaukee the day after Metallica. And Meta- and Foo Fighters also had the day off. And so, or they had two days off. So they were like, fuck it. Like, come to the show. Or they were playing the next night. Yeah, we were both, us and Foo Fighters were playing the same night. We both had the same day off. And so we both went there and... Lars hooked us all up and got everybody in and and uh, band and crew. I mean, they took care of us, stuck, stuck us up in the and then, and then Foo, Foo Fighters and Machine Head had a shared dressing room. So like that, that was basically just like an open bar. <laughs> it was just a bar. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I walked into the. They're like, here, you, just, you guys can just kick it in here, and it was just like stocked with fucking Metallica whiskey and fucking Metallica beer, and you know, it was just a big ass room. And then us and Foo Fighters kicked it, and uh, I've met. Dave Grohl a couple times. In fact, we we sang uh, at, at the infamous Dime Bash. It was unfortunately overshadowed by something else. But Dave and I and the singer from King 
did a cover of uh, Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. And it was, that's a whole other story that I'll maybe get back to. But, um, you know, so we talked. And I was like, hey, what's up? And, you know, I met the rest of the guys. I'd never met the rest of the guys, but I had met Dave a couple of times, Dave Grohl. And, uh, and then Taylor came in. <clears throat> and Taylor just like, man, super high energy. <laughs> like, I'd never met him before then. Obviously, I knew who he was, but just like super high energy, like, bah, da, 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 da. and uh, we just said, hey, it was just kind of, it was very brief. And, <clears throat> you know, Lars stopped by for a minute. And so I was just ma- mainly talking with him because I knew him best out of everybody. And because uh, we toured for, we toured for nine months together. <clears throat> and then, uh, but yeah, it was cool. It was just a kind of, just a quick little, hey, how's it going? You know, I didn't get a picture or nothing. I'm, I'm, I probably, I probably should just hire a photographer to be around to take photos for those moments. Cause I never want to be the dude like, Hey, let's get a selfie. Like I'm always just not, I'm not that dude, but you know, every once in a while, if the time's right, but not when you're like, not right, right when you meet somebody, you know, like I always feel like it's weird. Like, Hey, let me, you know, and, uh, anyway, that was it. That's just, that's the only thing that I have. He just seemed like a really nice guy. I'd seen him do, uh, I'd seen him do a couple of, uh, like a master class. I'd seen him do some other stuff. And, uh, I saw him, I saw him do this thing. I want to say it was like, I want to say it had something to do with Queens of the Stone Age, but it was basically Taylor Hawkins paying tribute to Joel Walsh, the guitar player from the Eagles. And he just, Oh my God. Like he just melted over that dude. Like he fucking, they were like, he fucking loved that dude. And he just went on. And I want to say it was, I was watching something that had to do with uh, Queens of the stone age. And maybe they did a jam, a desert session or something. And then Joe Walsh was there. And so was he, I I don't know. I can't remember, but it was pretty cool. It was really like, he was a genuine, like straight up genuine Eagles fan, which I love. And I love the Eagles. Like I fucking love the Eagles, and uh, and so it was just kind of I don't know. I just thought he was cool, great drummer. But I uh, I tell you what, after he passed away, and it was so shocking, you know, because man, like you know, he seemed like such a happy dude, like you know, very upbeat, and you know, he had everything. Like he fucking. He's good looking and rich and funny and super talented and beloved. And, you know, you, you look at that toxicology report or at least the preliminary one that they released and fuck man, 10 different drugs and, you know, dude was in pain, man. Dude was in pain and it was fucking, that was just so sad. Like I just, you know, you never know what anybody's going through, man. Like, who knows what people go through in their life. And fame is hard, you know. Like, fame is hard on my level. I can't even imagine what it's like on their level. But, you know, it was just so sad. But I tell you what, the one thing that I um, I had never seen this. I, had, I, I saw the Foo Fighters, I guess probably the most, la- I think the most recent time was about 2014. I was on a press tour for Bloodstone and me and Marcus Jacob, uh, who was the head of press at Nuclear Blast at the time, took us to uh, 
Actually, it might even before that. I don't know. I don't know. I went and saw them somewhere in Germany. I saw them play in arena. It was fucking awesome. They killed it. And um, I saw them on their first tour, actually, too. I saw them. This is before they had, uh, this is before they had, uh, what's his, uh, Taylor Hawkins. They had another drummer on their first tour. My monitor guy ended up being their monitor guy. My Burn My Eyes monitor guy. The guy from the Burn My Eyes tour. So he's like, hey, come on out. And, um, yeah, where was I going with this? Oh, I know where it was. So then I somehow, like, I stumbled on a video. And granted, it was the wrong video. It was from Chile. And it said, Dave Grohl's last performance. That's what the video said on on YouTube. And so I clicked on it, and I thought it was. And I actually... I downloaded it and I saw and I put it up on uh, I put it up on my Instagram page. As it turns out, it wasn't his last performance. It was uh, his second to last performance. But then somebody sent me the link to his actual last performance, and you know I didn't know that Foo Fighters did this. As I said, I hadn't seen them for you know some time, at least live, and I didn't know all this stuff. But they um, how do I do this? I can share this on the screen here. Can share this right here, yeah, right here. This is them doing. This is them doing Queen, and it's Argentina, so fucking just insane fucking crowd. And they talk. They bring out Taylor. Look at this fucking crowd. This is insane. <laughs> You know, the best thing about Taylor Hawkins... But, uh... Look at this. And those pants make it sound better. <laughs> he's, look at these pants he's got. <laughs> I'd be managing those pants are fucking awesome. Drum the fucking orange spandex, tiger spandex. Listen to this shit. God damn. That crowd's awesome. Fucking... Singing Maniacs. So they do a cover of Queen, uh, Somebody to Love. This fucking these pipes, man. Like, I knew he sang. I knew he had a solo band, and I'd heard some of his solo stuff. But dude, this fucking good voice. What is somebody, 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 anybody find me? Somebody to love. I mean, dude. I'll include this link, okay? I'll include this link. Because it's fucking... Fucking great. And I tell you what, the one that I shared from Chile, like, like the sound quality is a little bit better. And it's even better. Like, it's fucking really good. And, uh... 
you know, yeah, just sad, man. I'm so fucking sad. I mean, I, and I, I just did not see that of all the people that I've, you know, there's some people that are just a mess and he just never seemed like a mess, you know? Uh, and like I said, you never know, man. You never know. You never know what anybody's going through. You know, you see the little, the little snippets of their life on Instagram or you see the little snippets of their life in the press and that's not reality. Even the reality that I give you is not reality. You know what I mean? Like, I'm pretty much an open book. I'm pretty, but you know, you just see glimpses of my life, you know? So, yeah, rest in peace, T- Taylor Hawkins. That was, I mean, that fucking Queen clip is just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, Queen is not an easy band to cover. <laughs> like, anytime you're doing Freddie Mercury vocals, it's, that's, you know, you're literally aiming for the, highest of the highs there and uh you know to pull that off and fuck good way to go man good on you uh will smith thing happened chris rock uh, let me let me first let me say i love chris rock like chris rock one of the funniest motherfuckers in the history of the fucking goddamn world that fucking bring the pain special from like 20 years ago is still, I still say jokes from that fucking, I still say jokes from that special. It was funny as fuck. He is, he's a genius. He's a fucking genius. He's coming here to Oakland and I want to go fucking see it too. Fuck. I'm trying to buy tickets and fucking tickets are a lot of money. I don't got, I'm not, I'm not, I can get into a Metallica show. I can't get into a Chris Rock show. <laughs> it's crazy. These comedians too, man. Like it's crazy. I was looking at ticket prices. I love Tom Segura. Tom Segura is another comedian. I fucking love Tom Segura. I've watched every one of his specials over the pandemic. I just kind of discovered him over the pandemic. Fucking hell. He is funny. His dodgeball one or whatever the first most recent special. Jesus. He is fucking funny. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get tickets for him too, and they're eighty bucks a ticket plus fees. I was like, "Holy shit, I'm in the wrong business." What the fuck am I doing? I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> I've been doing this for thirty plus years. I can't charge eighty dollars for a fucking ticket. It's fucking nuts. Comedians, I'm in the wrong business. I need to start telling jokes at our shows. Fucking raise the ticket prices. I'd tell you, though, um, you know, and I like Will Smith. You know, I've never liked, you know, I never got into his hip-hop or rap or whatever. I thought he was fucking corny as fuck. But, you know, he ended up being a great actor. You know, great movies, Independence Day, Muhammad Ali, you know, the fucking, that one where he's just him and the dog in the future after the apocalypse. Um, you know, it's crazy, too, because I was watching Howard Stern or listening to Howard Stern uh, talk about it, and it's like, this is a dude who's lobbied, lobbied and lobbied and lobbied the Academy to fucking get an Academy, to get an Oscar, to fucking get an Oscar, Oscar, uh, you know, lobbied, he'd play the game, you know, you and you got to play the game. Like, you want to win a fucking Oscar, you got to go to all the parties, and you got to suck up to all the Oscar fucking Academy people, and you got to, you know, play the fucking game. That's how you win. You know, you don't play the game like you don't win. And uh, 
you know, it finally is there. And he fucking ruins it. He fucking ruins it by completely overreacting to a fucking thousand percent forgettable joke. Like a fucking, you know, sure, he joked about his wife's hair, you know, and she's bald. And, you know, I guess as we now know, Chris Rock didn't know that she had alopecia, didn't know that she had a thing going on, thought she just shaved her head. And, you know, when you're a fucking famous person married to an extraordinarily famous, famous person, guess, and you shave your, and you show up to an award ceremony with your head shaved, guess what? Like, you know, whether you're outspoken about your medical condition or not, not everybody knows what you're doing or what you're going through because nobody cares, you know? So, you know, had he just laughed it off and not done anything, the joke, that joke wouldn't even have made, you wouldn't even have seen a clip of that the next day. That wouldn't have even been a clip that they fucking showed because it was just such a dumb, benign joke. It goes up and slaps him. I was like, whoa. You know, and I get it. You know, keep your name out my wife. You know, keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. I get it. But, you know, here's the thing that pisses me off about this. He goes back down and just sits down. He goes back down and just fucking sits around and waits to win his award, which I'm pretty sure he knew about. And, you know, then goes and talks about love and this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, listen, if that was Mick Foley, there's a, there's a wrestler out there, Mick Foley, this, he had this to say. If that was The Rock up there making that joke and not Chris Rock, the slap doesn't happen. Fuck no. Only reason it happens is because Will Smith's bigger than Chris Rock. And, you know, Mick Foley said, you know, love is a bully. The, the vessel of love is a bully because that's, that's what Will Smith got up there and talked about. The vessel of love. the vessel of love. Whatever that fucking means. Yeah. And I agree with Mick Foley. If that was if that was some big fucking dude up there making that same dumb joke, that shit don't happen. No fucking way. You know, maybe there's some longstanding beef that we don't know about. You know, I mean, Chris Rock says, I love you. J you know, I love you, Jada, right after it, you know. And. Uh, but, yeah, what a shame, man. He fucking ruined his moment, ruined it. Ruined his moment. You know, even listening to his speech after, like, he's just so fucking clearly knows that it's just a fucking mess. Yeah. You know, I don't have an opinion about taking the shit away or fucking whatever. I just, you know, Lord knows I've been a fucking dick myself and punched people for no reason. And here's the thing, though. I guarantee you're going to see a spate of dudes going up and slapping other dudes. You're going to see a spate of now a comedian's going to say something at a comedy show and you know, you get offended now. Oh, well it's okay. You know, look, Will Smith did it right. I can go up and just slap you in the face and you know, what's going to happen. You're not going to be, you're not going to have Chris rock 
who ain't going to press charges. I guarantee you, if it was me, if it was me going up to somebody who was insulting my wife, and I go and slap this motherfucker, I'm catching a case. I'm getting sued. That's what's happening, you know. And that's what bothered me about the Will Smith thing, that he knew he could get away with it because he's rich and famous and fucking can buy his way out of it. You know, there was no consequence. The motherfucker got a standing ovation. I was like, holy shit. I don't know if that, I don't know, I don't know if we need to do that. I get it. You want to defend your woman, for sure. And, you know, there's been plenty of fucking times when, you know, I'll tell you right now, fucking my, when Ginevra was my girlfriend, some dude robbed her right in front of her apartment. Man, I tell you what, me and my friend jumped around in a fucking car with a fucking gun. We went hunting. I was going to fucking shoot a motherfucker. I get it. I get the feeling. And you know what? I'd be in jail. And Machine Head would never have released a record. If we would have found him, I'd be dead or in jail. You know, so I get the feeling, but man, you can't do that, Will Smith. Come on. You're too famous. You're too famous. Overreacted. You know, and while I'm sympathetic for her, look, you know, you're going to go to an award ceremony with your head shaved. You know, first time people are seeing you in probably years. I don't follow. I don't know anything about Jada Pinkett Smith. You know, I think that... uh you know, people are going to be surprised and people are going to talk. Guess what? If you're a nobody and you shave your head and you're a woman and you walk into a diner in Nowheresville, fucking Pennsylvania or Nowheresville, Iowa, <laughs> motherfuckers are going to make fucking comments. And if you're fucking super famous, married to someone who's super, super famous. Yeah. Goes with the territory, man. Know it's coming. But whatever. It's done now. No. It's done now. I, uh, but yeah, you're going to see all kinds of dudes now smacking other dudes. I guarantee it. Guarantee this is going to be, it's been okay. He just made it okay. Right? He just made it okay for that shit to happen. And dudes are going to get arrested. <laughs> dudes are going to get sued. And they're going to be like, what the fuck? And it's a shame. You know? And, and, you know, let's not forget that there's a fucking war going on right now with fucking shitheads in Russia. You know, fucking Putin invading a democracy. You know, that's the real important thing here. And, you know, that's what's disappointing about it is like with all that going on and like that's the shit you're going to do. You know, that's the big picture. You know, seven hours of fucking Trump uh, conversations missing from January 6th. That's the big picture right there. Not the Will Smith slap or the Chris Rock slap. Don't forget about that shit. Don't let these distractions keep you away from that. 
Trump said he never heard. I never heard the term burner phone. <laughs> Fuck you. Because in a deposition just, you know, a year ago, he used the, fir- the word burner phone three times. Anyway, I'll tell you what. Let's, let's wrap that up. But rest in peace to uh, rest in peace to Taylor Hawkins, man. And I tell you what, you guys, um, you guys loved that fucking Watain. You loved that Watain interview, man. I'm glad you dug it so much. So many people wrote in. So many people commented. You know, people were stoked on it, man. And I'm glad you were stoked. I was, I was stoked to do that interview. I think they're a fucking great band. You know, bring a cool, cool vibe to the world of music. Um, this band right here, right here, I got Brent from Shinedown on. And, uh, good dude, man. I got to say, this was a really great, this was a really great one for me. I love this band. I'm, I, I'm not going to, this is one of my favorite bands. One of my top 10 hard rock bands. Like I think that, and I say this to him and I'm going to say it to you. Go listen to the sound of madness right now. Top to bottom. All the way front to back. It's a fucking stone cold classic. One of the most important hard rock records of the last two decades. Top five. You know, maybe the most important one. That's how good this record is. And uh, they got a new record coming out called Planet Zero. And this right here is the title track to it, already released. This is coming out on uh, April 22nd, Earth Day. right this is where I got the whole record I got the whole record it's a banger dude it's a banger if you're a Shinedown fan don't even fucking hesitate to pre-order this shit it is fucking awesome This is a song called Monsters. This is off of their last record, Attention, Attention. Attention, Attention. They have... Uh... Let's go 
to this. Let's get to the rock. Somewhere in the stratosphere. But this right here, man, this record. I've been talking for a while. I want to get to this interview here. Half an hour in. Jesus Christ, I'm a half an hour in. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Did I not fucking record this? <laughs> Fuck. Oh, I am recording it. Good. <laughs> I was like, did I not press record, motherfucker? Come on now. I wish I could play the opening track off of the new record. It's a banger. This chorus is killer too. The harmonies devour, 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 Hooks galore, baby. Hooks and on hooks on hooks on hooks. But I tell you what, one of my favorite songs off this record. Where am I at? The last song. Is it? Sign it. Oh, not the last song. <laughs> oh, I got this. This is the special edition I'm playing. No, not that one. This one. Yeah, this chorus right here. She's snorting coke up. All right, here we go. Oh, what is it? She's snorting coke off a suicide note. Oh my god. Hey, hey! Coke through a suicide note. Right here. Sunlips, dead eyes, cyanide, sweet to suicide. She's a killer, she's mine. Banger, dude. Banger after banger. But this one, everybody probably knows this song, and I'll end it on this. The second chance song. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I welcome you here, the mighty, mighty Brent Smith from the even mightier Shine Down. Brent Smith, how you doing, man? I'm better now, man. It's good to see you, brother. It's good to see you too. Where where are you at? I am currently in Winter Springs, Florida, which uh, if you need a landmark, that's basically about an hour and 15 minutes away from Daytona, probably 25 minutes away from Orlando. Okay. My son is here. And uh, so anytime I'm not on the road, I practically live in hotels, but uh, most of the time when I'm not, uh, I'm not out, I'm here in Winter Springs with my son. Your son is, uh, is Lyric Santana. Is that your son? Lyric Santana yeah, that's Smith. A, that's a wild name. That's, I don't think well, I've I got the, I have a boring name. 
So I had to give him a good one. <laughs> right. You're like, I'm Brent Smith. What, what's your middle name? Uh, we were talking b- before it started. My middle name is Stephen. My father's name is Stephen. And, uh, but my actual birth certificate, like what's on it, my full name is Brentley Stephen Smith. But okay. that's just too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I like Brentley. Brentley's good. That's a pretty. It always gets messed that's up. A pretty, that's Brentley. a pretty unique name. I've never. Yeah. I don't know if I've really heard that. That's not very common. Yeah, yeah. The southern side of things is like there's there's Brantley, so it's B R A N T L Y, I think. And then Brent was not a common name in the '70s. I was born in '78. My parents were like, you know, there was Brett, there was um, Brad, there was uh, Brendan, Brian, but my parents had never heard Brent, so they named me Brent. Right on. Yeah. Brentley Stephen Smith. Yeah. You were saying that you put your, your, your full names on the last album on attention, attention, like middle name and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like for Eric, it was William Frederick Bass, the third. Wow. And for Zach, not a lot of people know this unless they dig deep with uh, Zach, but his first name is Michael. That's where the Michael Myers comes from because his full name is Michael Zachary Myers. Okay. And then uh, Barry's full name is Barry Allen Kirch. We just thought it'd be interesting to use our full names on the last album. Right, right. Yeah, Brentley's good though, man. I don't know. You, you could have kept that. You could have kept that and been a rock star still. <laughs> you know, like Maybe. It's just so different, you know, like. That's what worked. I like that your uh, your dad get so your dad gave you his middle name. Yep. My dad gave me so I'm my dad's name's Conrad, so I'm Robert Conrad. You know, so we did the same thing. And then my we passed that on to our kids. So it's so it's Xander, Robert, Flynn. And then my wife's middle name was Lee, so it was Wyatt Lee. We gave him Lee. So kind of like tried to we tried to you know, make, I don't know if it's a tradition, maybe it sticks, maybe it doesn't, but we tried to do that just because I thought it was a cool, it's a cool thing. Those are very strong names though. Like as far as full names are concerned, those are very, uh, those are very strong names. Yeah. Your son is, uh, I was reading that your son's like six, four and like killing it on basketball, right? Like he's just (laughs) like a fucking NBA beast in the making. Well, he, um, so he's in eighth grade and oh, in eighth grade. Holy shit. He's in, he's in eighth grade. He'll be going into his freshman year in August of nice. this year. Um, but yeah, he's quite, he had a big growth. Uh, he had a big growth spurt and um, he's, he's taller than I am, uh, which is interesting. He's 14 with an opinion. That's, that's new. Um, so uh, it's a wild ride, man. You know, but he uh, he keeps me on my toes, man. But no, the kid has got some, you know, he's got some legitimate game, you know, and I've just told him, I've said, listen, you know, if you really, really want it, um, you just got to want it more than the next person. Um, But I appreciate the fact that he's very much a team player. He's a great shooter. Um, He'll go between being a forward and a guard. Um, and here's the thing. I don't have like a big time sports background, but he loves everything that is sports. I got to get him to kind of pay attention to his grades a little bit better. Um, but yeah, man, he shows a real interest in it. He works really, really hard at it. So, uh, yeah, man, we'll see what happens. Yeah. That's awesome. 
That's, I mean, especially at that young age, you know, like if he continues, doesn't get any injuries, he could really, he could do something. You know, he's yeah, that, he's got he's a spirited um, about it and that passionate about it. Yeah, I mean, what I've tried to instill in him because the unique thing about it is also people will ask me, oh, he's got to want to follow in his father's footsteps, and I'm sure he's into music and all these. You know, that must be a big part of his life. It's kind of an annoying question, isn't it? (laughs) Not it. It's interesting. I would, you know, I would assume probably that maybe that question is something that's a bit common. But what I've tried to do from the moment he entered the earth is I've never made it about me. Um, And the thing is, is that, I mean, he likes music, but he does not care that his dad is in a band. And I mean, honestly, we don't ever even talk about the band ever. Um, A lot of his teachers at school, they're really respectful of the fact that um, when I'm there to, you know, if I'm doing a meeting with them or we're discussing things of that nature, they never bring it up, uh, which I appreciate because it's about him. It's not about me. And I mean, he likes music, but it's just been here recently that he's asked me more about like when I started uh why i wanted to be in a band how i got into music because he does see um you know the fact that i'm on the road a lot um and i'm very grateful for facetime and the technology the technology we have in this day and age because back in the day we didn't have it so because i'm on the road a lot that facetime is something that helps out a lot um but with his game and his skills and things of that nature i've always just told him i've said listen you know, you got to lead by example, you know, don't be a trash talker, be a team player, go out there. Cause at the end of the day, you got to win games. You know, if you're good at practice, you're good at drills, that's all fine and good and everything, but can you win basketball games? I mean, that's really what they're looking for. Right. Right. No, that's some, that's some solid advice for sure. I, I do. I, I, uh, I relate to you in the sense that, you know, like everybody always goes, Oh, do your sons play music? Like, you know, like if I was a baker, like no one would be like, oh, are your sons baking, <laughs> you know, croissants? Like, no, they're not. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just like, I, they can do what they want. You know, like my son, my youngest is really into um, cello. He's got crazy into cello, like really just playing it all the time. And That's awesome. And does soccer. So he's like kind of sports and kind of music and yeah, doesn't, doesn't listen to music, like doesn't really care about listening to music my oldest son is just all rap like just rap 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 all the mumble rap yeah. stuff and you know if he wanted to he could sing uh he's got perfect pitch like literally like he could be so much better as a singer than me <laughs> like if he wanted to go down that route and he just doesn't care you know how old are your kids 17 and 14 okay no, so 15. wow just turned 15 yeah just turned 15. So you got full blown teenagers. Yeah. Oh my God. It's just teenage. Yeah. He, my son just started, my oldest just started driving. So it's like weird. You know, like I don't have, how to is that? Like, I'm, I'm curious about the driving. Like I've taken my son out and let him drive like in parking lots, like wide yeah. open spaces, you know, and stuff like that. But like, how is it now that is he driving without you in the car? Yes. Like by yes. himself? Yeah. For the longest time that? we were in the car and you know, we just, get, and you know, for the, you know, I tell you what, it was the weirdest thing. Like when I was, his age i lived in fucking fremont which is like 50 miles away from the city and it's like just a fucking giant suburb in the middle of fucking nowhere it's just that classic just you know empty suburb 
And right. all I wanted to do was get the fuck out of Fremont. Like, I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. Like, uh, fucking the day I could get it, I got it. Like, all I wanted to do was drive. And he just, it, it, it's just like, it's like a different time now like they just like he would just rather just sit on his phone like i would have to like almost force him like okay we're gonna go drive you need to practice driving you're gonna be getting your license like and uh and he did and he got it and uh, and now now that he has his freedom he's just like oh my god like i totally get why you know like you wanted me to do this and I'm like yes now you can now i don't have to drive you to fucking school every day <laughs> you know you right can drive, you can drive your brother but, you know, he's going to see friends and, you know, going to see girls. But we didn't have an Internet. Like, yeah. we, we had to go everywhere. We were like, as soon as we could get it, man, it was like, get me out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like, as soon as we had that freedom, man, it was like, bang, you know, gone. Totally. Yeah. And it's such a, you know, yeah, I do. I do think it's the Internet. You know, like, he'll just he'd just rather look at TikTok for, you know, if he could look at TikTok for eight hours a day, I think he'd look at TikTok for eight hours a day, which is. I will say this about. My boy, the other day, he did something that, like, me and his mother were kind of taken back by, but I appreciated it. He deleted his TikTok mm. a few days ago and consciously uh, did it because he even said, he goes, he goes, this is rotting my brain. Wow. <laughs> He's like, my brain is getting rotted. Wow. He noticed it. So I was like, well, at least you noticed it. I'm like, he didn't cancel his account or anything like that. He right, just deleted right. the app off the phone. Yeah, you the know? temptation. He took the temptation away. Yeah, he's just like, man, I'm. I feel like he even said it to me. He goes, Dad, I, I think I'm. I'm. I, I think I. I'm stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, well, at least you admitted it, <laughs> you know. So that's uh, very. Yeah, he that's hasn't very, had it for a few days, which is, is good. That's really um, uh, observant, you know, <laughs> like a, a crazy yeah. observation for a fourteen-year-old, especially, like you know, that's wild. Yeah, yeah he can literally about... feel his brain like deteriorating. And it, dude, so do I, man. Like, I got to take breaks sometimes. You ever do that? Like, you ever take a break from just? The oh event? yeah, yeah. I man, my thing is this though. Like with social media, I kind of follow the Rogan uh, method. Man, I post and ghost. I very, very rarely will look at comments. I, you know, not that I don't care you know, about the fan base and if I'm doing something with the band or, you know, a public forum or what have you. But that's what I've found uh, allows you to kind of be in charge of it is just don't look at the comments, man. If you're going to post things and you're going to be opinionated about things or you're going to express certain things, do your thing, man. But if you do not want to go down the rabbit hole of that comment section because it will mess you up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Posting goes. I never heard that. That's pretty good. Yeah. You just post and you don't look at the comments. Yeah. You know, but, you know, just, but do you do you disconnect for do you find yourself sometimes, you know, maybe you're bored or whatever, like where you're just on your fucking phone for like two hours just looking at Instagram or like you're just and then you like come to like at the end of two hours, you're like, What the fuck am I do? I just wasted two hours of my fucking life doing this. I think it was when I so when I did the, I'm trying to think of how long ago it was. I guess it was probably four months ago. This is recent, actually. Four months ago, I did the update with the new phone. I don't have the 13. I have the 12. Okay. Because um, I'm an iPhone guy. I'm not an Android guy. Same here. Um, and 
I guess it just, when I did the update, it automatically has your screen time. Right. It'll tell you like what you did for the week. And I remember seeing that for the first time. And like my screen time per day was like eight hours. Right. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is no, no, no. We're not doing that. Right. And so I went in and so I try to not be on the screen. Um, I mean, if I'm doing things like this, it's right. a different, uh, there's a different approach to this because I'm being productive. Um, but just mindlessly scrolling through things. No, man, I had to get myself in check with that because I was doing it, didn't realize it. Um, and yeah, once you can see that uh, you turn that on on your phone, yeah. and I guess I didn't have it on before the update. And then you can see how much you're on the phone through the week. I was like, oh, my gosh, not don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. So I actually have that on and I have alerts like it'll let me know, like, yo, you're almost at two hours you know, what have you. And it'll just make me stop looking at it. Yeah. I actually, there's a thing now I, I put it on there where you can set a limit on certain apps. So you can do like, okay, I'm two hour limit on Instagram and you can, or two hour limit on Twitter or two hour limit, whatever you can, you can set it. Right. And I was like, and I thought, I, in my head, I was like, two hours, like, I'm never going to get to two hours. <laughs> like, I'm not, that's a lot. That's a lot of different, you know, platforms. And fuck me if I wasn't getting to like two. I was like, I'd get the warning. And like, you've only got five minutes. I'm like, holy shit. Like, I got like, what? stop. Like, just stop. What's crazy is the attention span and what you realize, because now, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So what's happened is that I'll notice more so now that I have a hard time concentrating on a, an hour and a half to watch a movie. You know what I mean? Like I, sometimes I'll be like, I'll be 35 minutes into something. Like I just got back from the UK and uh, Europe. I was doing press over there for about 10 days and I got I back that. about four days ago, but being on a plane, I could concentrate on a film, but like I would notice like I can't I'd be trying to watch a film or decompress at the end of the night or something like that. And I would just find myself wanting to pop over to Instagram or Twitter, or go look on YouTube. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like you, the attention span, you have to kind of uh, the other element of that also is days go by way quicker. Like you got to wake up at like 5 a.m., 6 in the morning. And to feel like you've had an entire day, because if you're waking up around 10 a.m. Now, granted, when I'm on tour, I'm sure this might be like it for you as well. When I'm on tour, I usually won't go to sleep until like three or four in the morning because I'm on a different schedule. But I've just noticed in the last couple of years that like my attention span has gotten, you know, way less than it used to be. Like just noticing that it just seems like the day goes by quicker. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I was uh, I was talking to Michelle Kerr, who uh, I think she does your publicity over there. And, yeah, I just uh, saw her. Yeah, and she was saying that you and your manager came over, and were like, yeah. "We're gonna just fucking go do. We're gonna go to these labels. And we're gonna go to the head of all the offices and just be like, we have a new record coming out, and you're gonna pay attention to it." <laughs> like, and I was just like, "God damn, that's fucking awesome!" Like, you know, just get in people's faces and you know, I'm not be aggressive, but like, you're there like, Hey, you know, this is important, you know, face to face meeting, not just an email or a fucking what at zoom or a whatever. Yeah. I, I thought that was, I thought that was rad. I was really uh, stoked that you guys did that. That's awesome. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean the thing important about it is, too, like being on a major too, I would imagine that's pretty important. Like you got to get those people's, you know, attention. Yeah, I mean, the dynamic of it, um, and me and you are cut from the same cloth. I mean, um, yeah, I look at it like this. Um, if you don't take the initiative, especially when you're working with a major label, you also have to remember that that major label um, has a lot of artists. And if you don't take the time to get in front of them because they're busy doing other things, that's the whole reason why they're a major label. And obviously they're gonna have priorities. You know, I don't take it for granted that the band that I'm in, uh, we've been on Atlantic Records in the United States for 21 years. Um, same really management company. Time. Yeah, same manager. Phil McGaffey and everybody at Indigood Entertainment, uh, same manager for 22 years, yeah. same A&R at Atlantic Records for the last 21 wow. years. That's amazing. And that's, un that's from, almost unheard of, really. Yeah. And yeah. the dynamic there is a lot of it. I think early on, I realized that, you know, if you don't discuss what you're doing, if you don't if you're not excited about the project, they're not going to be excited about the project. I mean, there's so many different facets of the music industry and the music business. I mean, that's why it's called the music business. Obviously, the creative is a huge element of that. But internationally, it had been two years since um, we had been back over there because of COVID and what have you. Like we finished our last touring cycle uh, in 2019 with Alter Bridge in the UK and Europe, November and December. And, uh, you know, going over to the UK and working with the Warner Music Group over there, uh, it was important, you know, that we went over there and we were, what was great though, the UK is like post COVID now. Like, it's like, it didn't even, it's like, it doesn't even exist. Like it didn't even happen. Awesome. Um, people are out. Everybody was in the label. I mean, the buzz was all through, you know, the building. You know, no one's wearing a mask. Everyone's high-fiving. Everyone, yeah. you know, the, the energy's circling they're around. They're back in the office. They're back in the they office. They are in the office. Yeah, awesome. totally. Yeah, and uh, same thing in Europe, uh, for the most part. Like, I was in Stockholm uh, working out of the Warner office there um, with an incredible uh, was, gentleman. Uh, been with are you, do you work with... Uh... Darren. Darren Edwards. Yeah, Darren Edwards. Yeah, he's the man. man. Darren. Yeah, he's the best. Yeah. So man. it is, man. I, I'm I'm old school when it comes to that, man. Even in the middle of a pandemic, you know, it was it was time to get in front of everybody um, and tell them what we were expecting, what we want to do, the layout of everything, and yeah, it was you know a lot of work to get in front of everybody and to get those meetings scheduled, but you just do it, man. Yeah. Good for you, man. Good for you. I mean, and, and, and I can see why you're so, uh, stoked on it. You know, like this record is, you know, I got the advance of it. It's fucking awesome, dude. Like it's Thank you. Awesome, Very much. awesome record. I love that the first two songs are just fucking ripping guitars loud as fuck. <laughs> I was just all, yes. You know, like my, uh, my introduction to you guys is sound of madness, you know, so devour right. you know, the, the heavy guitar stuff. And, you know, it, it kind of took me back to that listening to this, you know, like when I, when I, I've been listening to it for the last week or whatever. And, you know, I mean, those, I tried to pull up the, I tried to pull up the song titles, but my, I guess my thing expired or whatever. And I can't see the song titles now. I'll just see some other thing. 
but uh the opening track is it don't can't sleep or never gonna sleep what is the no sleep tonight yeah no sleep tonight yeah no sleep tonight yeah that's a it's yeah. like a ripper it's a ripper it's a great way it is to, man great way to start the record yeah i mean you know one thing with uh the whole record so the last album you know we take it very seriously that um so Eric Bass, who's our bass player, who was probably a bass player last, if, if, if you were to break it all the way down, because the guy can play multiple instruments. Um, you know, speaking of, you know, perfect pitch, you know, he came from a piano background, a mother that was a vocal teacher, still a vocal okay. teacher. He's got um, great vocals, man. He does. Well, yeah, it's the man is um, he is just a different type of person because a lot of times myself and Barry and Zach, we kind of step back in awe of him because he can compartmentalize music in such a unique way. Um, and he's an incredible producer. Like he doesn't have a drill sergeant mentality. He's very much a positive reinforcement type of an energy in the room when, um, when you're with him and you're recording with him. Uh, but when you have a band member and you do a record in-house, the very first one was Attention, Attention, where Eric is the producer, he was the main engineer, and he was the mixer of that album. Wow. This record, Planet Zero, he's the main engineer, he's the producer, uh, and he mixed the record. Wow. And Fucking those records sound killer, dude. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people that. didn't realize. I really, like, really like the last record, too. That record was great. And, and part of this particular record was we all talked about it collectively. And that was we're known for making these records because we've had a lot of great teachers. I mean, some incredible engineers, male and female producers, songwriters, male and female. Um, where we're so lucky that we've been able to explore all these different avenues over the year, um, over the years. And especially, too, with this record. You know, in the beginning of the pandemic, I arrived in South Carolina with Eric right around June of 2020. And I was calling studios just to kind of get an idea of, hey, are you allowing people into studios even with everything going on? What's the protocol? And they were like, Brent, we don't know when we're going to be able to open it up. As of right now, we can't. So we had to make a decision. Um, and so what we did was uh, we took 18 weeks and we built a studio from the ground up on his property. And so we built the studio, but once we got in there and we started writing the songs and we started listening to the way everything sounded, um, we all made a conscious decision. Let's not layer this record like we've done in the past. Let's not stack everything. Let's not use an abundance of effects and quote unquote tricks and studio magic. So what we decided to do was let's go in here and we wanted it to sound like we were in the room with you. So a lot of the record is dry. Like a lot of the vocals are just, you know, I'm compressed, but I'm like right here. And, you know, he kind of focused on the stereo a bit more like big mono down the middle. And he did that with the guitars. He did that with the drums, like none of the drums on the record. There's no sound replacing on anything. The drums you hear, are the drums in the room wow. um, on a couple of songs, he did the drums outside just to have a different feel and what have you. A lot of the guitar work is not stacked and stacked and stacked. Um, it was more about finding the right guitar, finding the right amp, 
turning it wide open and capturing, you know, the amp and the guitar more than just like, hey, let's just layer this until it sounds big. Yeah. Um, so we just tried to focus more on it sounding like a band in the room with you. Yeah, I think I think you feel that, too. Like the, there's even one song near the end of the record. I can't remember the name of it, but it was like kind of has like a, almost like a 70s glam vibe. But it was like the guitars were like, you know, kind of sloppy. And I was just like, fuck, yeah, listen to that. It's uh, I think it's you might be talking about the second last song we appreciated yes yes that one yeah that's very like retro super retro totally and i i was just like this is fucking cool i like this one i liked it a lot you know that's a good jam yeah yeah the army of the underappreciated that's what it was yeah yeah am i am i am i correct am i correct in hearing that like am i hearing like a 70s glam kind of a vibe or am i just no, I mean, I mean, or I should say, yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, the thing is, is that I think some of that, I mean, there's, there's definitely songs that are very much modern. Um, like there's a song on there that has a bit more of a, of an alternative feel. Um, like you got a song like Sure Is Fun, which is more of like a big bombastic alternative song. That's got a couple of effects here and there, but a lot of the guitar driven songs, which is, predominantly a lot of the record um one thing that eric did on this record with everybody was it was really important for everybody to play through so he once we got the song figured out and we would lay down at least a a roadmap for the demo and then once we kind of practiced it enough then it turned into okay we're gonna hit the red light but I want everybody to, Eric was like, I want everybody to stay calm, but we're going to do it a little differently. And as we do it, you'll see what I'm talking about. And what it was, was we would get the feel of the song as a four piece and he would record everything. And then when he would go back, if he wanted to do more guitars with Zach, it wasn't about necessarily going, okay, let's work on the chorus. Let's tighten everything up. Okay. We got this, we got that. Everything's locked in. All right. Now we'll just fly it over you know, and just gritted. He didn't do that. Barry was obviously from the drums was on a click, but what he did was he wanted you to play it through. So as you were playing, if you kind of messed up or or slipped off or something like that, halfway through the song, he was like, no big deal, but you got to start over. You got to play it all the way through. Oh, geez. (laughs) So he wanted, he, he was like, I want the feel of the whole song. Right, and right. I want it to feel like a band is playing together, which we were, even down to the vocals. Now I overdub things when I needed to, but for a lot of it, man, he would have me sing through it all, yeah. you know, just so that you could get the vibe of the song and it didn't turn robotic. Right. Um, so that was really important. So it was okay that some of it was sloppy. It was okay that it was kind of, you know, grimy and kind of it had an attitude. It was human. It, you know, a computer didn't make it. I think too sometimes when you when you record like that you get these at least in my experience like sometimes like if I don't know what I'm doing like I'm still haven't quite figured out the vocal melody or I haven't figured out my cadence or I'm just kind of looking at like you know a few sentences and getting like sometimes you just get this magic this magic that like this just totally. I don't even know what I'm doing and fucking I just tried something and holy shit like what was that that was killer Right. You get those little magical moments. And if you can, you know, like what you're doing, you're recording it as all at once. Yeah. Like, how cool. How cool. And the other thing with it, 
there's no instruction manual when you're writing a song. You're pulling something out of thin air. And when you get inside of the studio, and I think that this comes with practice um, and just doing it a lot. Um, when you're on the road, everybody knows. I mean, there's a muscle memory that comes into place there. And so the longer you're on the road, the tighter you get. Um, same thing in a studio. You got to be in there for a minute because it's two totally different animals. Yeah. And I think more so than not, what happens is, and what we're so lucky, kind of going back to why it's not the norm per se. Um, I know that you know a lot about this because your band, you've produced a lot of the material and a lot of the, the records that you do. Um, and for us, these last two records, there's a comfort in having the band member as the producer and the engineer. And we're lucky enough to also, he's the mixer. And right. me and Eric spend a lot of time together when we're making these records. Um, and it's just a balance that you, uh, over time, you learn what works and, and what doesn't. But the cool thing is, is that there's not an instruction manual. There's no handbook. You're, you're going off of what makes the hair on your arm stand up. Right, right, totally. You know, I, I, I really like hearing that. And I, I didn't really know that information prior to, to this conversation. But I remember when I heard Attention, Attention, I was like, ah, oh, there's, there's my shine down again, you know, and I don't, and I don't want to say anything bad about anything prior to that. It's okay. But just, you know, like I kind of, I, you know, the songs didn't grab me in quite the same way and I still listened to it and I still loved your band, but like I, I, I did it. And then, but when I heard that last record, I was like, oh, whoa, there we go. Okay. Like that's that, you know, that's just the band that I, you know, you grabbed me on Sound of Madness and that's what I grabbed onto. And so, and, you know, to hear that that's all internal and it's all just about, you know, you guys kind of going inward and yeah. maybe finding your, uh, you know, finding, you know, it's easy to get fucking lost in the music business sometimes, man. You've got, you know, you have success and you got a million motherfuckers telling you, you should do this and you should do that. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know. Well, one element to it was when I go back to the Sound of Madness album, Rob Cavallo was a huge part of the, the being the producer of that record coming in. And his biggest thing was he had said to me that you're still searching for your sound. I want to help you find who you are, because I think I know who you are, but it's going to take some work to hash this out. And I was willing to do that with him. And the album speaks for itself. Then you move into Amaryllis, which Rob Cavallo was a part of that as well. But that was also when Eric started to kind of come in and kind of raise his hand more with the songwriting aspects of everything um, on that record. And then when you move, and so did Zach um, on, on Amaryllis too. Um, you know, I think that it's common knowledge in some circles on Sound of Madness also you know, the band is myself and Barry and Eric and Zach, but there's a fifth member of the band in the studio uh, with Shine Down, and his name is Dave Bassett. And he's been a big part of the songwriting part of who we are since the Sound of Madness record. Um, and I mean, he's just a major part of, of what we do. Um, but when you go to Threat to Survival, 
that album was an experiment and that was on purpose because we kind of that album has five different producers and eight mixers wow and it's <laughs> it was like kind of a hodgepodge of a lot of different stuff wow and we did it because we were like why not what? and how, so how do you how do you decide like how do you even make that decision like that's so many people like what's the well, what's the criteria like i want this song by this guy because x or well the thing that happened was first of all so that was so the very first time that eric did a production on a song with shine down like where it was his production was the song diamond eyes me and zach and eric wrote that song but that's eric's production okay uh chris or chris or algae mixed it and then when you move into um amaryllis eric was involved like me and zach uh and dave we wrote bully and then eric came in and eric was part of the songwriting parts of me and him wrote the song I'll Follow You, and then Enemies was me and Dave and Eric. Unity was me, Dave, and uh, and Eric. Um, so Dave's like a songwriter. He just like helps write, kind of helps. Dave yeah. is, you know, once again, he's he's the fifth member of the band in the studio in a yeah. lot of ways. And um, he, he definitely is, is one of the main songwriters that we work with that he's more than just, uh, he's a part of the, the family. And, you know, that that came with time um, this, you know, but then you move into something like threat where it was just a combination of working with different people. Like we worked with we worked with the producer Scott Stevens on that record. We worked with Dave had production songs on that record. Did you guys um, have something to do with the Imagine Dragons guys on that record? We worked with a guy um, who was kind of like a sound effects type engineer that was working with them. For the life of me, I cannot remember his name. Um, but uh, yeah, it was like one component of their team. And that was on the song, uh, State of My Head. And uh, But that song was written with a bunch of different like new school guys along with the band. So there's a lot of writers on, on State of My Head. Um, but... Did it, feel, did it feel good on attention attention to just go okay too many too many cooks in the kitchen like let's just go yeah because but we wanted the cooks in the kitchen on threat like we were doing that to kind of like i said it was just we were like why not let's do something different just to say that we did and if it works cool if it doesn't no big deal and that record was pretty successful um but i hear what you're saying because the element of why attention was so important was, first of all, it was time for Eric to do a full record. Like he felt confident that he was in a place where it was his time to do it. And he had a great, he had a great way of explaining this because we also brought in Mike Fasano, uh, who has teched every drum session for Barry since The Sound of Madness album uh, and we also brought doug mckean in who was uh one of the a engineers for rob during sound of madness and amaryllis um we brought doug in for attention attention and he came in and helped with the drums also and he also came in and helped with the drums on uh planet zero but eric had a good way of expressing why it was time for him to do a full-length record and what he said was this he goes 
I would rather go crazy making the Shinedown record myself rather than watch someone else uh, go crazy trying to make the Shinedown record. Fair enough, man. Yeah. Yeah. Because believe me, the dude didn't sleep. <laughs> and he definitely didn't sleep on this new one either. I don't think he, I didn't, I don't think he slept for 18 months on this last record. Nice. nice. I love, uh, I love that song special off of the last record. Oh, cool, man. That's one of my favorite songs too. Yeah. I, I just wanted to ask you about that a little bit. Cause I just thought it was such a, it's such an interesting lyric, you know, like, yeah. You, uh, it's almost like we, I don't know, for the last 10 years, all we've heard is, you know, everybody's special and, and you're beautiful and you're special. And then like, here you are, I was listening to it. I was like, oh, you're not special. <laughs> I was just like, okay, T- tell me about this. That song, um, I think in a way, what that song represents is understanding that in life, there are going to be moments where you're not special and neither am I right. Like there's gotta be a level of where you have to save yourself from your vanity, because if you don't, then you're not going to become a compassionate person. You're not going to understand what empathy really means. You know, as time goes by, you know, people talk about the internet being undefeated and it's not true. Really. It's uh, mother nature is undefeated. And I think that for special at that time, when we were writing that record, that whole album is, yes, it's a conceptual piece, but it's a story album of really the human spirit. That whole album, Attention, Attention, is about everything that we go through as human beings and what makes us all tick. And the fact that it should never matter whether you're a man or a woman, or whether you're younger or you're older, the color of your skin, that's irrelevant. Your religion, that's who you are. That's what makes you an individual. That's what makes you necessary. But I think why special maybe hit a chord with people, I think that early on, people did understand what we were trying to say there. We weren't trying to be um, disrespectful um, at all. What we were trying to say was sometimes you have to turn the microscope around on yourself totally. and you have to look at the detail and what makes you who you are. And it's okay. Um, if things do not work out all the time, it's okay. If some days you wake up and everything is not going your way. I often say that, you know, as a human being with everything that we're thrown on a daily basis on this incredible planet, this journey that we're on, it can all, it cannot always be when it's convenient for you. You have to look at the big picture. You know, you have to look at the big picture. I think one of the elements about special is that understanding that um, we're all going to have these ups and downs, but inside of that, you're not the only person on this planet. We occupy it with a lot of different creatures and a lot of different organisms and a lot of different situations and scenarios. So sometimes it's good to remember, Hey, you know what? Um, I'm not perfect and that's okay. Yeah. Nice. I, uh, I would imagine that hope is not a four letter word is going to be, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be a single because I think that that could be just a very cool song, you know, for people to connect to. 
that was a great, fun one. To great write. lyrics, great lyrics, just great hook. Yeah, that was uh that um <laughs> what did we say? We we finished that one and that song is like the two for one because <laughs> two for one. it's kind of like two songs in one. Because like it starts off a certain way and then you know, as it you know, you're like you're listening to it, you're understanding what's being said, and then all of a sudden it just kind of takes a really quick left turn and it, you know, this bridge opens up and it kind of, you know, has this really what we think is a very unique crescendo. Um, and it's interesting because the tempo doesn't change. It's just the way that it's played changes. Okay. And uh, yeah, man, that, that was a very simple lyric. Um, hey, have you heard? Hope's not a four letter word. You know, it's not supposed to be bad. You know what I mean? Like we're supposed, that's why they say, you know, sometimes you have to hold on to hope, you know, and uh, we'll see what happens, man. I think hope might be one of those songs on the record that might turn into like a sleeper kind of comes out of nowhere. Right. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, yeah. Good stuff, man. Good stuff on that record. I'm excited for you guys. It's dropping April, right? April 22nd, which uh, on Earth Day on purpose. Ah, wow. All right. Yo. Okay. Planet Locked all zero. that stuff Planet together. Zero on Earth Day. Sequences of stuff. Right. <laughs> it's kind of a. I mean, you've been you've been pretty uh, pretty vocal about the fact that you know people are going to find some lyrics controversial on probably. On the album. You know, songs like "America Burning." I would imagine maybe even some of the stuff that the robot voice is saying in between songs. I'm, yeah. I think that you're talking about that. Tell me a little bit. Tell me a little bit more about that. I think that um, I believe me when when I arrived in South Carolina, I, I have to I'll try not to be too long winded about it, but you have to understand my mindset. So the pandemic occurred. Everybody was told, go inside. We need 15 days to flatten the curve. Obviously, that turned into 15 months and beyond. Right. Um, the dynamic of that also was when the pandemic hit i was in california and me and zach were working on at the time uh because you have to remember january 2020 me and zach were working on the double album for the smith and myers project so we were putting that all together um and then the pandemic hit immediately i reached out to an organization called direct relief and we, along with Direct Relief with the Atlas Falls campaign, we helped uh, raise a half a million dollars for COVID-19 response at the height of the pandemic. And at that point, though, it was June and I'd been in California for 20, I think close to 28 weeks I'd been there. Um, and I just said, I've got to go. I got to get to South Carolina. I needed to check on my son. I had to leave California, get to Florida, make sure my boy was okay and everybody was all right. Um, and then when I arrived in South Carolina with Eric, we both kind of took a deep breath and looked at each other. And the idea was to kind of try and have a crystal ball method, which was we thought let's write three years from now, meaning no one's going to want to talk about this. No one, everyone's going to want to forget about this time in human history. We're going to move on. The problem was, is that wasn't happening. Um, and it was getting worse. Yeah, I mean, June 2020 is like, this is when all the protests are happening. And it's just, it's pretty 
crazy. I mean, it's yeah, maybe, it's maybe the beginning of the craziest time of that period. And the other side of that too is, I had just written a song called "Not Mad Enough" about what happened to George Floyd, and to this day, I wish I had never written that song because I wish the man was still alive and I wish that he was with his family. But coming from that and, you know, like the rest of the world, when I witnessed what happened to him, um, these words came to me and this song presented itself. And, you know, as a songwriter, you can't question it when it comes to you, you have to just write it. Um, And that song is point blank about what is right and what is wrong. And what happened to that man is wrong. And you saw what happened also where it wasn't just America that was standing up, you know, about this. The entire world was making a statement with that saying, this is wrong. And when I got to South Carolina, my thought process was we've got to find the other side of this though there's got to be another way forward there's got to be a way that as human beings we can connect and we can unite as people and as it was happening and as time was going by i remember eric looked at me probably a week into to writing and me and him kind of trying to write outside of it and it just wasn't happening. We had to write about what we were seeing. We had to write about what we were going through and what the world was going through. And I remember him saying to me, it feels like we're on planet zero. Oh, shit. And what he meant by that, I think, in a lot of ways is that no one can even have a human moment any, anymore. Everything is on display. Everything is an analysis. Everything is being analyzed. Everything is strategic. Everything has become clinical. The humanity is getting lost. And the other thing was, you didn't know who was telling you the truth. Like you, you couldn't understand exactly what was going on because everything became a fact check. And everybody was trying to get to the newest buzzwords or the newest buzz feed of some sort. And the humanity was getting lost. And the reality of it was not just in America, from representatives, I'm talking about representatives and governments all over the world. They need to remember something. You are a representative. You're not a god. And you're supposed to have the best interest of the people. Like there are way more citizens on this planet than there are armies. There are way more citizens on this planet that outnumber, to be respectful here, people that are in a representative state or have that authority. Don't get me wrong. I'm not an anarchist. I'm for justice and I'm for governments that listen to their citizens and represent their citizens. Look what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia right now. Those Ukrainian people said, hell no. Said, hell no. Hell no. Fuck you, motherfuckers. See, on top of that, now you have Russia and the citizens of Russia also saying in response to the Ukrainian people, hell no is absolutely right. Right. We're with you. We don't want this. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and not to get so 
And, you know, when they're doing it, the consequences of them doing it is a hundred times more severe than anywhere else. You know, them dissenting against the government, them dissenting against the war. You know, you see like that girl running up on state television and holding up. They're lying to you. You know, shit like that. Like, yeah, she disappeared. (laughs) And right there, man, the dynamic of all of this is I know that there are people that are. Listen, I know that people are afraid. I know that they don't want to get you know, in the, in certain industries, and you don't even have to be a celebrity or even in the public eye, this idea of being canceled, which is very unique on a lot of different levels, because you have to allow people to have a human moment. You know, what you might've done 10 years ago, or maybe what you said, whether you were ignorant, whether you were young, whether you didn't understand that you possibly said something that maybe you thought it was a joke, but it did not hit the same way. The fact of the matter is, there is something called forgiveness. There is something called, I mean, when I, when I take a step back and I look at how aggressive that has been, especially in the last two years, um, it's unique because nobody can have, it just seems like, no, you're not allowed to have a human moment. You can't make a mistake. And if you ever made a mistake and we find out about it, you're done. I don't, I don't understand that. And I don't think that's right. However, if you have done something illegal, if you have done something against the law, if you have hurt someone, if you have murdered someone, if you have raped someone, then you need to go down. And I think everybody understands that. It's there's okay human to cancel de- that. There's human. Okay to cancel them. There's, yeah, there's a moral you know, compass here when it comes to that. But when you talk about learning from somebody and you talk about having the respect in a conversation with somebody, maybe you don't agree with them and maybe you don't understand exactly where they're coming from. But if both sides allow the other person to finish their thoughts and you have a conversation with each other, I guarantee you both parties will learn something from each other and you're gonna walk away from that conversation understanding each other better. And I guarantee you, you will think differently about that other individual if you allow them to express how they feel. Just because you might disagree with someone does not mean that you should wanna kill them. You know what I mean? And I think that there's just this dynamic of, of hatred that stems from a place where, you know, are there people that have an agenda because they want to see, they want to see other people at each other and they want to see that chaos breed more chaos and it grow and it fester and it disease a society. Of course they do. You know, they want to see what happens. They want to see, you know, they want to see, uh, it's like when you go to a race, they're not coming to watch you race. They're coming because you might crash. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And what I do think more than anything is that inside of this album and inside of these songs that we're presenting, uh, this was not an easy, this was not an easy record to make. Um, sonically emotionally um it's a lot to unpack 
But I have to believe that in this band, our audience, whether they've been there from the beginning or whether they're just kind of finding out who we are. I think if somebody was to ask an individual, describe Shine Down in one word, I think they would say honest. Because that's honestly the only way we know how to be. And we couldn't sugarcoat anything and we couldn't act as if we were gonna write songs that were gonna be presented as if everything in the last two and a half years has been a-okay. Because right. uh, it's not been that way. The only thing that was majorly different with this record versus the other albums is I think experience was what we wrote about in those records. This was the first record where we were writing about everything in real time because we were all going through it in real time together. Everybody on this planet. It's pretty bold too. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I think a lot of rock bands have really shied away from anything like this. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of, you know, a major label rock band that's putting out music that that dove into the, you know, Foo Fighters or name whoever you want to do. Like, no one's touched this subject, certainly not in in hard rock. And, you know, I, I, I commend you for, you know, putting it out there and and and, you know, maybe you will receive some backlash. And I'm sure you will, just like everybody kind of gets a little bit of backlash. But, you know, you're going to I think you're going to find that you're going to affirm a lot of people's, you know, convictions that you share with them. And that's, you know, good for you, man. Good for you. I'm, but I I'm, also, I'm excited to see what this does for you guys. I mean, I really am. Cause I think it's such a strong record. It's such a catchy, it's a fucking classic shinedown record. Like it's a straight up classic shinedown record. I also, and it's not like, the, um, and it's not like that you haven't really delved into this before. You know, you had the one right. song that was kind of addressing George W. Bush on Sound of Madness and stuff like that. So was, yeah. it, so was it Sound of Madness or Devour, one of those songs? It was Devour. Devour, yeah. And, but inside of it all, I think that people have to understand that this band, there are a couple of ways that we look at things. Number one, this band has one boss. It just happens to be everybody in the audience. Our audience has given us a platform to be ourselves because we want them to be themselves. They've allowed us to evolve and they've always supported us um, when we do something that's not the norm. Or maybe if you have to look at it in a more broad stroke, it's not following suit with what you would think we would do. We don't really want to be put into a box because we don't believe in it. Um, I think that you're constantly day in and day out. If you're a musician, if you're someone that creates, you need to constantly be inspired. You need to constantly look at the big picture. Don't make it about the painter. Make it about the painting. And in this album, there is a lot of frustration. There is a lot of anger. There's a lot of questioning. But there is also a lot of triumph. There's also a lot of strength. There's also a lot of understanding and there's quite a few deep breaths on this record too. And, you know, for a band like us, you know, lyrically I'm considered the main lyricist in the band and I've been talking about mental health for the better part of two decades. Um, before it was public knowledge or before it was being talked about in any kind of press circle. Um, my biggest thing is that I've always told people it's okay to be different. It's okay to not be understood. Um, that's part of being alive. 
And that's part of the journey. I think more than anything, when it started to get brought up more and part of what the song Get Up on the last album was about, because that album was written about, you know, the album, but, but that song Get Up was the whole reason why Get Up was the song on the last album that showed us what attention needed to be. And I wrote that song about Eric. And Eric has always been very, very upfront about what he has gone through over the years in regards to clinical depression. And the fact that some people think that depression is where someone gets up. It's not the same idea as someone having the case of the Mondays. There are people out there and for the longest time, they never spoke up. They never said anything because they felt like they were going to be embarrassed or they were going to be made fun of or they were going to be ashamed or they thought that people were going to look at them and go, you're just trying to get attention. Um, and that's not the case. For some people, there's a chemical imbalance and that's okay. But, you know, the worst thing that you can do if you know someone and they mean something to you, whether they're a friend or a total stranger or they're a family member, but if you see something that's off, the worst thing you can do is be quiet and not say something to them. Because if you do say something to them and they're allowed to talk to you about what's going on, you could potentially save that person's life. And I mean, I know this for a fact because I've seen it. And if anything, we want people to understand that you can get better. Um, this world is a is a tough place to navigate right now. And it's okay to feel unadjusted. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to be scared. But, you know, the part of human beings that I have the most faith in is the humanity. I think that down deep, we are all inherently good. And we are all inherently um, selfless and we want to take care of our fellow man, women and child and children. And I don't want people to be afraid of when they're sad or when things aren't going the right way that, you know, nothing's ever going to get better or it's not going to get easier or um, that you're always going to feel that way and you're never going to be happy. That's not the case. And I don't want people to be afraid of their failures either in life. That's part of the journey. You're not going to be, your legacy is not going to be built by your failures. Your legacy is going to be built by the fact that you refuse to give up. You just got to believe in yourself. Let's, uh, I want to lighten the subject matter a little bit. Bring it on. <laughs> you grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, right? Born and raised. Born and raised in Knoxville. That's, I've been listening to uh, Morgan Wallen a lot lately. Yeah. I can't stop listening to fucking Morgan Wallen. <laughs> Sand in my boots and whiskey glasses and fu- Jesus Christ. I am fucking like, I can't get those goddamn songs out of my head. And all I hear is about Knoxville this and Knoxville. Little town outside of Knoxville. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How's, how's growing up in, did you... You don't, you don't you don't by any chance know Morgan Wallen, do you? Have, you guys don't really go in the same circles, right? I I don't know him actually. Um, I think Zach knows him uh, pretty yeah. well, but I'm not. Shout out to Zach too. Zach's a good dude, man. I like him a lot. Zach knows everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, he told me to tell you what's up. By the way, right um, uh, I don't know Morgan uh, personally. Um, I like I said, I think Zach's talked to him before. You, yeah, ever, you, ever you ever listen to Morgan Wallen? You ever listen to Morgan Wallen? Do you ever listen to Morgan Wallen? 
Man, I got to be honest with you, the sand in my boots, that's that's one of the most infectious songs that I have heard probably in the last five years. I mean, right. obviously, the guy is, uh, you know, all over the place. Once again, you know, he's had to deal with a lot of stuff these last couple of years as well. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, as a as a songwriter and how young he is also and how he kind of came on the scene. You know, once again, this is a guy that uh, what you're seeing is what you get. Um, it's 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 very authentic. You know, he's coming from you can hear it in in the way that he presents himself. And also, man, the respect that people have for him in the industry. You know, there were people that, you know, jump ship on him early yeah. on. Um, a lot of those people are trying to jump back on that ship. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're like, they're trying to hook onto that anchor at this point. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that he has done is uh, I think that he has tried to remain as respectful as he possibly can with what was uh, presented to him in uh, in his life. But it's interesting to see the dynamic of the industry and how things uh, are taken in the beginning and the way they are now. Um, you know, what I wish for Morgan Wallen is, like I said, I don't know him personally, but everything that I've seen, he seems extremely genuine. Um, and uh, I wish him luck, man. I mean, he's doing really, really well right now. He I is. know all of his tour dates I, you know, are pretty I think much too, sold out. I think, he, I think he gets like, uh, you know, like when the people hear he's a country artist and it's like they kind of just automatically, like he's so much of a rapper. Like there's so many rap tracks on that record. I mean, yeah. it's like straight up trap beats and hip hop beats and it's just got him and his twang, his Knoxville twang over there. Yeah. Like, and I love it. You know, like that's what I'm, you know, I'm a big hip hop head and so like, to me, that was what was surprising because when I hear country, like I don't, you know, like I'm thinking whatever. And then, you know, I go down this rabbit hole and I'm listening to like one part of it's probably like legit pop country. And then the other part of it's just like rap country. you know? Yeah. And it works so good because he's he... a fucking great rapper. Like he's got that like post Malone kind of flow and you know, easy voice. Lots of, you know, nothing's a lot, a lot of whiskey drinking, like, Something good happens in your life, drink whiskey. Something bad happens in your life, drink whiskey. Like <laughs> there you go, man. There is a unique thing though. Is it, is it weird to listen to someone sing all the time about every song about whiskey when you're sober? <laughs> like you're just like, all right, bro, enough of the whiskey. <laughs> hey man, you gotta write about what you know. <laughs> right. But there's an interesting thing. There is this very unique twang to everybody that was legitimately born and raised in Knoxville. There is a um, there is some kind of a cadence. Yes. And if I go home, because I was born like in the heart of Knoxville, Tennessee, like smack dab in the middle, uh, right off Chapman Highway, which everybody is from Knoxville knows exactly what Chapman Highway is. Right. Um, I mean, that basically is the gateway to north, south, east and west Knoxville. OK. And there is just a unique kind of cadence in the way people talk there now, obviously the university of tennessee is there um you know big uh college football town uh had a great basketball team they lost unfortunately the other day but they they worked really really hard um there's a unique thing that i can be home for two hours 
And I don't normally have a country like it, it, my my uh, we call it a draw. Like there's a certain kind of timbre to the way you end your phrases okay. and what have you. When I'm out on the road, I'm a bit more articulate and, you know, in certain things that I'm doing, I'm working with a lot of different uh, people with a lot of different personalities. I, mean, I, I can hear your accent. Stuff. I can hear your accent for sure. If I'm in Knoxville for I, two hours and it all comes back, like immediately, I all of a sudden sound like a Knoxvillian. It's, it just that, comes what's, back. Like what's, what's a classic Knoxvillian phrase that just no one else even in like Nashville would say, Oh my gosh, what would it be? <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Um, well, nobody says, uh, nobody says, uh, wash. Like when you wash clothes and you wash your car, everybody in Knoxville says wash. wash. Hey, you gotta wash that real quick. I gotta wash it real fast. So that's a very Knoxvillean thing to do. Um, uh, bless her heart. That's another one. Okay. Like, you know, if somebody's talking uh, about she gave a, you a good blow or... She gave you a good blowjob. Bless her heart. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, we're going to get in trouble for that one. Um, yeah, it's, there's just, it, there's a bit of this, it's endearing. There's kind of like this, um, uh, I, I think, um, you know, hell's bells, that's another one, like okay. in, in, in Knoxville speak and, uh, Knoxville talk. Like if somebody's talking to you about something and whatever the situation is, it, it's too complicated for you or someone's making it too complicated. Okay. Like, okay. you know, I remember my grandmother would just be like, well, hell's bells. You know what I mean? You know, it'd be like you know, that. You know what you, you know? said earlier too, that I hear. Uh, Morgan Wallen say a lot. You said, hell nah. L N A H N A H. Hell nah. Yeah. Hell nah. <laughs> hell nah. Yeah. No, that's true. I don't want to drink he, no more. Hell nah. I just want to sit yeah. till the pain wears off. <laughs> that's it, man. That's it. Yeah. That's good stuff. Growing up, uh, is your, is your family musical? Is your, is your mom or your dad, do they play instruments? Do you jam around with family members? So I'm an only child and um, my mom and my dad are not musical. My dad's kind of musical a little bit more now. Like I had an interesting upbringing because I was, and to my recollection, I'm the only musician in the family uh, in almost like a few centuries. Oh, well. Um, so like my grandmother who passed away um, while I was demoing what would eventually become uh, Shinedown's debut record, Leave a Whisper, she passed away suddenly during that time. She was actually uh, tracing back our family uh, and our lineage and like our crest and our creed and all of these different people. And she was going back quite a ways, like a couple hundred years. Um, and there were no musicians. Like I was the first one uh, that kind of came into the fold, but, you know, a really good friend of mine once told me, you don't pick the music, the music picks you. And I can't for the life of me remember ever wanting to do or 
ever wanting to be anything else than what I do now. Like from, from birth, my mom was always like, the moment he entered the earth, he was singing, he was making noises, he was grabbing instruments, he was playing on stuff, he was beating on drums, he was making drums out of stuff, he was never quiet. I was just always really vocal kid. And um, from the age of 10 years old, I started writing songs like I had for whatever reason, I could write down how I felt at a very young age and kind of put it in a song form. Um, yeah, it's just been a part of my what life. Kind, what ever kind, since of, what I kind of music are you? What kind of music are you writing? Are you what kind of music are you listening to at 10 years old? Like pop punk or like alternative so, metal or well, for me, country? for me. It kind of started off with um, some like old school traditional country. So like Randy Travis, um, Conway Twitty, uh, obviously Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, um, Loretta, Loretta Lynn, a lot of Dolly Parton, a lot of Waylon Jennings, nice. um, Tanya Tucker. Um, so like more old school. And yeah. then as I got kind of a little bit more into the pop world i started to listen to the beach boys and really that's when the harmony yeah the, well the, wow. that's when the harmony thing happened okay with me where i was just like i mean i remember hearing good vibrations for the first time time and just being like what is this you know because i just never heard those harmonies and you know the first time i heard them all sing you know wouldn't it be nice and it was just like this doorway opened up um but when i was a teenager i was heavily influenced um into like grindcore i got into like really heavy punk rock but like the dwarves and the exploited obviously sex pistols misfits um you know the mummies um digging into like kind of obscure things of that nature and i wendy o williams um nice. all of that like kind yeah, of yeah. you know odd oddball type punk rock i remember my dad coming into my room at like 14 15 years old and he goes brent i have i have no idea what these people are so mad about <laughs> like <laughs> like it's just the sound but he gave me a cassette and of course he turned around, walked out of the room. He's like, listen to this. I think you might like it. I'm like, all right, dad. Turns around, walks out, threw it in the trash. I just threw it in the room. Two weeks go by. You threw it in the trash? I just threw it in the trash. I'm like, you I didn't listen to it. Is. I was a punk rock kid, man. I'm punk. You know what I mean? I didn't care what my dad said. And um, <laughs> two weeks go by. I'm rummaging through my room because my room was a mess. And I find the cassette. And I'm like, man what is this? I put it in a cassette player. I, I hit play. There's a guy named Otis Redding. And Otis Redding got me to Al Green, which got me to Sam Cooke, which got me to Percy Sledge, which got me to Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye got me to Nina Simone, which got me to Billie Holiday, which got me to Ella Fitzgerald. And what my dad didn't realize he had done was he opened up this completely different universe that I didn't even know existed. Like the first time I heard Otis Redding sing, it was like, it was like tasting chocolate cake for the first time. And what I didn't realize was soul music and R&B and these singers 
taught me how to sing with conviction. Not that punk rock didn't teach me how to sing with conviction, but there was a different element to what soul music from that generation, like it ignited something in me that I didn't even know was there. And that's kind of like where you hear the soul music in my voice. You kind of hear a certain Southern timbre in my voice. And it's the beginning of the band's career. And as it progressed, you can see kind of like how it moves back and forth. But the conviction of like really using your voice as an instrument is what I learned from soul and R&B. Where does, uh, do you start playing a rock band somewhere around this age? 14 years old, I was in my first band and I had a fake ID. A friend of mine gave me his brother's fake ID that I looked kind of like him. So it was like I could get in 18 and up. I started long, playing you, in clubs when hair, I was... You have long hair, a mohawk? Yeah. What do you have at this point? Okay, gotcha. I had like hair down to here. It was like dyed Kool-Aid purple and red and stuff like that. Um but is what like, I would do, is this like early nineties? What is this? This is ninety. Um, where would this have been? I graduated in ninety six out of high school, so it would have been so like, probably yeah, like mid nineties. Ninety two, ninety three. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, dude, I'm a grunge kid. I'll, you know, ninety to nineteen. I mean, dude, everything like, uh, you know. Soundgarden was was and still is religion to right. me. Right, a temple, um, temple of the dog. You know, I can yeah, see, I like can listen to that record freaking all day, every day. Yeah, it will never. I, it's just one of the greatest things ever put out in music. Yeah, I mean, to the point of where that record in itself, in and of itself, is I look at that as like a historical document, right? In a lot of ways, right? Um, but. So 90s kid, uh, yeah, I started playing, started playing in bands. Band? Like, are you in a Do grunge band? Are you in a grunge band? Yeah, like you start? Very, okay. yeah. Grunge band. But here was the thing about me. I didn't learn, like, I didn't want to be, like, that was my big thing. Like, I would walk in to the bands that I kind of curated and put together. Some of them would come in and they knew how to play a bunch of different songs from other artists and things like that. And I had, um, I didn't care about that. Right, you're I only cared about people that wanted to write. So like I walked in a lot of times and they would be like, well, we can play this song. We can play this song. I'll be like, do you have anything of your own? And they were like, what do you mean? And I'm like, do you write anything on your own? And they're like, well, I mean, I've messed around on stuff and I'm like, well, show it to me. And like they would start playing right away and I would just start singing something. And that would always kind of like throw people off because I wouldn't wait around. I would be like, show me something that you came up with and I'll come up with something off the top of my head. I always had a backpack with a bunch of journals and like notebooks. So I would just pull a, you know, a journal out, thumb through something real quick and like whatever they were playing, then I would just start reading whatever I had written. And so I never wanted to learn anybody else's songs. I just wanted to write, you know, my own. So at an early age. So you never went up and covered Teen Spirit or just fell on Black Days or, you know. Nope. (laughs) Wow. Never. No. I was always, I was influenced by it. Um, One of the reasons why I have the rasp in my voice at times and like when I do certain things, that was all inspired by Chris Cornell. Yeah. You know, I, I studied that man. The king. 
um, at length. The goat. You know, so. Yeah. He was awesome. a huge influence. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, man, it was like, and it was cool too, because like, I, I had a lot of confidence in the fact that once again, I was not trying to waste anyone's time and I didn't want to waste my time. Right. So I was like, I was trying to get it going, man, at a young age. So like I was in bands at 15 playing in clubs, um, on the weekends and stuff like that, sneaking out of my house to play clubs wow. and stuff, getting picked up down the road. You know, we can sneak out of the house and come back at three o'clock in the morning and crazy <laughs> shit. You know, uh, parents never knew I went out. <laughs> they know now. <laughs> but yeah, man, it's just I was just always trying to get it to get it started, man. I just wanted to do it so bad. I just didn't want to waste any time. What song do you lose your virginity to? Or is there a movie in the background or something? There was a band, it was an R&B band called Silk. And there was a song called Freak Me was the name of the song. And I remember hearing that in the background, along with a bunch of other stuff. But I very, very vividly remember that song in the background. Freak so everybody, oh, go look up Silk. I'm, I'm going to play this in the video. And that's what I lost my opportunity Freak Me to. by Silk. I've never heard that. This is like just some good 90s R&B shit. Oh, it's it's fantastic. I got to I got to hear this. It's <laughs> great. You know, I got to say I'm really I I'm fascinated by how young you get signed to Atlantic Records. And then your bands kind of fall apart, but yet they still keep you. Like they still believe in you and they kind of like allow you to put something else and then that that falls apart and then like you know, like you had like a couple of I mean, you put out a couple of records that didn't really do anything, right? But they, and the band dissolves, but somehow you're still on Atlantic. Is that, am I, am I, is that, do I got that right? In a weird way, man, it's very Shakespearean. Um, it's, it's unique. Um, so I was signed to a band out of Knoxville. Um, that lasted for 10 months and that entire time to Atlantic we were the name of the band was called Dreve and um, I gotta say it's one of the one of the lesser good names I've ever heard for a band (laughs) it was the your score was shined down but your first one was kind of a miss (laughs) I the the unique thing about that is uh the bass player in the band uh, my boy Andy, who I'm still really, really good friends with to this day. Um, it was his middle name, and we just couldn't find a name, and we were just like, let's just do that. Right. And I was and just, trying, just, to, I was just trying to imagine the crowd chanting Dreve, and I was like, Dreve. Hey, man, you know what? <laughs> Every, everything, you know, the, the cosmos weaves right. you in and out a different direction. Right, right. You know, the universe is real. Yeah. Um, but so the band was signed to, uh, you know, like a demo deal. Right. Ten months of just demoing and, and demoing and demoing and demoing. And um, then the A&R, uh, Steve Robertson at Atlantic Records, everybody in the industry calls him Steve-O. Um, 
who's still our A&R to this day. Um, he's also A&R for um, Paramore, a bunch of other great artists. Um, but he gives me a call and he says, have you ever been on a plane? And I said, no. He's like, I'm going to send you to Los Angeles. I'm like, I can't wait to tell everybody in the band. He's like, I'm not sending, I'm just you. Oh, and I'm like, uh, what do you mean? So what he did was he sent me to LA to work with two songwriters, one guy named Tommy Sims and another guy named John Shanks, which John Shanks is a legitimate, bona fide, incredible pop rock songwriter that's worked with everybody under the sun i gotta I didn't say know I, this. i'm so impressed with your memory for people's names <laughs> you literally <laughs> rattled off so many people's names and like i'm like damn this motherfucker is good with the names <laughs> um so i show up in la my first time ever and uh i work three days with tommy um in this gigantic uh very like what you would think big giant empty la home like in bel-air that had no furniture in it nothing just had like a studio upstairs and i just like slept on like a air mattress downstairs in this giant ten thousand square foot house um and how old, you, uh, how old are you how old are you at this point uh i would have been 20 barely 21 okay just barely 21 um and so working with him and um then i worked with john shanks um at henson studios it was my first time vinnie caliuto uh played drums on the two songs that uh we demoed which was wild um uh well, so you're and, demoing like guitars and you know so you're, you're yeah john was together. doing the whole okay, thing gotcha. okay yeah good. What I was doing was I was sitting with these guys and writing songs from scratch. And so recorded them. They were sent to Steve. He listened to them. And then uh, he sent the band that I was in uh, to Nashville to work with a gentleman by the name of Desmond Child. Yeah. Wow. And this is dream. That, that's where that's where kind of the rubber met the road and Desmond reported back to the label a couple of things and um but I think what was said from Desmond John and Tommy so wait Steve, so wait let me just so I'm clear you're still in LA the band goes in with Desmond Child no no, no. I came back from LA okay, okay, I was gotcha. back in Knoxville after the session that it was just me with with uh with John Shanks and Tommy, wrote those songs, recorded those songs, went back to Knoxville. Then Steve called. He was like, I want the whole band to go to Nashville. Okay. I want you to all write a song with Desmond Child. So okay. went in to write a song with Desmond Child. Did that, got back to Knoxville. And then what I remember um, next was uh, getting a phone call from our manager at the time, which is just a local individual there in, in Knoxville. Uh, who had said that Atlantic had dropped the band. Oh, geez. And so at that point in time, though, I was trying to make a decision of whether or not I was going to, this was right during the holidays too. This was like December the 10th, I think is when they made the call. Um, and I was going to do one of two things. I was either going to, in two weeks after that, I was either going to go to New York city and start, 
whatever I was going to, I was going to start in New York city and just hustle it. Or I was going to go back to LA and hustle it. I got a phone call from Steve two and a half weeks later from the call where we had gotten dropped. I just got the call from the manager, you know, of our band at the time. And, you know, obviously everybody was bummed, really upset. I was trying to figure out, you know, what you I was going to do. Do you next. cry on a day like that? Like, is it that? I didn't cry. No, I didn't cry. Um, I just was, if anything, man, it actually, because I, I, I could kind of feel, you know, 10 months of doing this, I could kind of feel what was going on. You know what I mean? Um, but I got a call back from Steve. And he said, how you doing? And I said, I'm good, man. How are you? He goes, I'm great. I want to sign you again. And I said, you just dropped me. He goes, I know. I want to sign you. And I said, sign me to what? And he said, I want to sign you to a development deal. And I go, I don't have any idea what that is. And I should tell you this. I had wanted to be on Atlantic Records since I was 10 years old. And that's a whole nother story. But so here I am. I've been signed by Atlantic. I've been dropped by Atlantic. And now I have an A&R calling me back going, I want to sign you again to a development deal, which was technically made famous by the founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmed Erdogan. Because right. back in the day, Ahmed Erdogan, he would go into these cities and in deep into the woods and everywhere else to find all of these incredible artists like Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin. You know, I mean, it just I can go on and on and on. Yeah. Um, and then build a band around that artist. Yeah. So what Steve said was the people that you wrote with, um, they told me he's a songwriter. He's, he's just surrounded by not the level of musician that he needs to be surrounded by. If you're willing to take a chance on him, I think there's something there. And that's what those songwriters said to him because he wanted to know their opinion because these are big big songwriters right, right. and he wanted to know their opinion so they all three kind of said they were like put him in front of more songwriters and see what happens and that took me on a three-year journey with steve and uh when i say three-year journey steve was with me every step of the way i'm talking about trains planes automobiles sleeping on the floor like he was with me like he put me in front of so many people, man. And we flew all over the country, drove everywhere together. What? I mean, he was with me the entire way. Wow. Um, and three years after that, we, um, we had created Shinedown. Cause I never wanted to be a solo artist. I wanted to be in a band, but yeah. that's how it happened, man. Yeah. That's a wild story, dude. That's such a wild story. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's intense. It, when know, I think back on it. You don't really hear you know, I mean, that's like something that you would have heard back in the 70s. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like they, major labels do not invest that much time and effort and money, and, you know, into building somebody up and, you know, writing songs. And like, that's a lot of career investment. I will tell you this. I have to give a tremendous. I mean, I, I mean it used to happen. It yeah. doesn't happen now. But I'm going to tell you something like straight up. Steve Robertson put his career on the line with me because at the time he had had some signings already 
and some bands that had gotten dropped already. And it was kind of one of those things where this was his, you know, wasn't said out loud, but it's like, you're going to bet, you're going to bet this on a kid from Knoxville, Tennessee, because you think he's a songwriter and he, and you possibly believe he's a performer. And his answer to that was, yeah. And, uh, and he was right there with me. And I got to give a massive amount of respect to Craig Kalman at Atlantic Records, who's been with us from day one, who's the chairman of Atlantic Records. And I got to give a lot of credit to Julie Greenwald at, at Atlantic Records, because those two individuals, um, and when Lior Cohen came into Warner Music Group um, and really helped transform it, uh, back during the Sound of Madness uh, cycle, you know, these people at this record label, I know how people talk about record labels. I don't have that experience because the reality is that these men and women have always allowed me to be an artist. They really have, man. They allowed me to hone the craft. They never put a clock on me. They, they were actually extremely encouraging of me. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's about the music and it's my responsibility to give them the goods. You know what I mean? Like they're only as good as what I present to them. Right. And and then it's their time, you know, then it becomes their mission to turn the machine on. And believe me, every time they turn the machine on, but I have to step it up and the band has to step it up each and every time. But when I think about it now and I look back at all of it, I will say this, the greatest moment for me and one of the most um, one of the most important moments in my life um, in the music industry and in this band's career was the day that the band was solidified as myself, Barry Kirch, Eric Bass and Zach Myers. Because once I found all of those guys and we found each other, not taking anything away from the first two albums or anybody else that I'd ever worked with, but you have to understand when the four of us finally were together, that's when the universe told me, this is what this band was always meant to be. Because if it wasn't, because me and Barry have been there for 21 years together, but if it wasn't for Eric and Zach, Shinedown wouldn't exist today. It just wouldn't. So I put a lot, I put a lot on those guys, man, because in all reality, uh, they, they did save the integrity of the band. The band wouldn't be here without those guys. I could, uh, I could probably talk to you for another two hours about the sound of madness, but I'll spare you because <laughs> I'm sure you don't have. It's all good, man. <laughs> I, uh, I genuinely believe that that record is best best hard rock record of the last 20 years like man un- you're gonna challenge unchallenged get me all emotional over here dude. unquestionable like it is a fucking masterpiece jesus dude thank bottom. you oh my god every so fucking much. song top to bottom is just it's fucking amazing like i can't even tell you like that record is 
you know, I don't know, maybe it's because of the time it, the time it came into my life. And, you know, I think that we, we actually played a show together. It was that yeah. corn, that corn shine, machine head shine down and yeah, and man, somewhere. And I just saw you guys and, you know, kind of like, I don't even think we talked that much, but you know, like I was just, I loved the band and, you know, I remember you, t- you were talking about, you're like, oh yeah, my bass player is really saving my ass on all these songs. <laughs> and I was like, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just, you know, to me, like, I, there's just such a, there's such a darkness about that record. And yet it's such an uplifting, you know, poppy, poppy record. And and I love that. Like, I'm a huge fan of pop. Like, I'm a fucking total sucker for that kind of shit. And, you know, even though I, uh, though I play some of the brutalist metal, I steal from pop shit all the goddamn time because it's just, I well, want to. Man, you're, you're. <laughs> What you do, though, man, is something that is beyond eclectic, though, man, because you do have those elements like your riffs and what you do in the band and how you utilize your voice. And also, too, how you had, you know, how you you had a massive evolution, too, from like certain beginnings. And then as you grew into not only a songwriter, but as a frontman and also a producer, like you are in a league all on your own, man. There is nobody like you, like your sound, your band. That's a. I'm gonna tell you right now, man. If there's anybody that is necessary in rock and roll and heavy metal, it's you. You, you are man. necessary. Thank you, man. Thank you. I, you know, I just want to say though, that record, I, I, I've heard things that you were going through. You know, I've definitely read about the cocaine addiction and the oxycontin addiction and the yeah. alcohol addiction, and I'm not sure how much it played. You know, even just researching you last night, I probably learned more about you than I ever knew. Just that you fired people during the writing of the record and like it sounds like the record was just fucking chaos for it was brutal a good brutal i mean you know wow and and that 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 was the end result was you know there's just so many you know to me when i you know and i want i use the word popular and i I just want to kind of clarify that you know to me I think that I embrace that, by the way, when you okay, say it, okay, like, okay, I, okay. I don't like, I don't shy away. Offended I, when actually, I, say, you know, I wear that as a badge of honor, okay. you know, because to me, I hear so many, uh, and when I, to, when I refer to pop, I refer, I'm, I'm talking Elton John, you know what I mean? I'm talking about like, I'm not talking about, you know, whatever modern horseshit we're talking. I'm talking about like, you know, I hear something, you know, like, the, you know, when you and I were getting high and out of space, you know, that's such an right. thing to me. Very much like, so. You know, when I heard that, I was like, oh, shit, that's just fucking butter right there. And, you know, but just juxtapose these very uh, psychedelic lyrics. Like, there's so much, like, you know, druggy, psychedelic-y. Uh, you know, maybe that's maybe I'm reading something into it, but no, you're not, man. You're yeah. you're you're listening to it very closely. Yeah, I you mean, know, I think that you know, to me, when when I think that we take the the tally of hard rock records released, you know, in the last twenty years, like to me, that rates over the Foo Fighters. It rates over you know so many other of the rock bands, and you know, I just want to say like. You know, congratulations on that. You know, you've made you, you've made Thank a record you. that that will live forever. You know, like even if it's Thank just you. because of Second Chance, which is a phenomenal fucking song. Thank you. But you know, to me, it was all about the hard songs too. You know, like the fuck. I gotta be honest though, too. Like, you know, one. You know, I still am in contact 
with Rob Cavallo, you know, and, you know, obviously, like we were talking about earlier, Doug McKean, who was a huge part of the engineering of that record. Mm. Um, and, you know, m the majority of the vocals were recorded just me and Doug, because I'll never forget. Rob was like, you don't need me to be in there to do the vocals with you. You know what you're doing. You know what to do. And uh, he trusted me on that. And but I will tell you this, too. Rob was at the top of his game when he took that what became that record, because um, he's done Green Day, right? Like American he Idiot had done he had done Green Day's American Idiot and he had just finished Welcome to the Black Parade oh, by Jesus My Chemical Christ. Romance. And oh, shit. and the thing that was so nuts about it was he had been given something like, and this isn't a made up number, he had been given something like 400 CDs of different artists and went through them all, like literally, because he was really trying to see what he wanted to do next. And one of the CDs was Leave a Whisper. And he put it on and he listened all, it was one of the only records that he listened all the way through, like to everything. And then he contacted Craig Kalman at Atlantic and was like, do you have this band? And he's like, yeah, they, they just finished, uh, you know, they're, they actually had a second album because that was us and them, but we were done with it. And yeah, man, it was like at the end of that cycle and what have you, what I'm getting at though is there was something once again, where the universe is real and putting the two of us together in this way. And then finding my way to California, meeting with Rob, Rob kind of like listening to some of the stuff that I'd been working on and what have you. And he was like, cool. I think you need a couple more songs and, you know, maybe I'll talk to you down the line. What, what are, what are the, then, what are the songs you're playing him? Like what songs are you kind of like, you've got demos of stuff at this point, I'm assuming. Yeah. So I had some demos left over from like the us and them sessions that we were oh, doing with from the, the producer previous of that. Album. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So from the last album, uh, that was uh, with one of the other songwriters that I had worked with for a long time, a uh, guy by the name of Tony Battaglia, um, who I wrote Burning Bright with and I wrote 45 with and all of that and uh, had these things. And I was playing. <laughs> it's so funny, man, because I'm playing him some of these demos. And when I met with Rob and I guess Craig at Atlantic and told him, he's like, yeah, he's got some new stuff he's gonna play for you too. He's got this one new song that he's gonna play for you, which I don't know what Craig was talking about. And I show up at his house and literally, I'm playing him some of these demos and what have you. And and, and, and Rob's like, okay, those are cool. Well, what's this song Craig said you had? I'm like, I don't have a song. I'm, I'm like, I've got these songs. <laughs> and he's like, okay, well, let me hear a couple more of those. And then we play a couple more and then he's like, you going to play me that song or are you holding on to it? I'm like, do you have a guitar? <laughs> and so he gets a guitar and he gives oh, it to me. Oh, you do have a song. You have a song. No, I don't. That's okay. the thing. I just made some shit up real quick off the cuff to him. Like literally right there just sitting down next to him. I just, I didn't care. I was like, whatever, man. I'll just make up something real quick. And at the end of it, he was just like, that's awesome. Where did that come from? I'm like, I don't know. And if you didn't record it, I don't remember it because I just made it up. <laughs> and he was like, huh, 
all right, well, it's been good to meet you, man. And I walked out of that house and thought to myself, I'm never going to see this guy ever again. I just blew it. <laughs> and nine months later, I was making a record with him. Wow. About eight, nine months later, I was making a record with him because the next person I met after Rob during that time frame was Dave Bassett. Okay. And then that's that's when like and that's that's kind of like your collaborator for all those songs. Yeah, man. Like once I met once I met Dave, um, it all changed after that. And uh, it, it was just a uh, once again, man, like the universe. It's it's you know, the story is still, you know, writing itself, man. It's, it's very interesting. And to see where we are now and, you know, once again, a lot of credit to a record label that's never told me who to be, always wanted me to be myself, never told the band who to be, always been behind the band. Um, and just people that really do care about music. You know, I will keep my fist in the air as high as I can forever when in regards to Atlantic Records. You know, I know other, you know, I know other people have different things about record labels and what have you. That's just not the experience I've, I've had. Um, and, you know, these men and women, I'll say this too, they work really hard, man. This is an ever-changing industry, man. And you got to remember, you know, it's called the music business for a reason. It's still a business. Yeah. And you're, you got to understand. Business records. You got to understand that, man. And, um, but, you know, I, I would say that I've been so fortunate to work with some of the most remarkable people in the world and still fortunate to continue to work with the most remarkable people in the world. Does Dave Bassett bring a lot of like the heavy guitar stuff, like the Devourers or the Cyanide Sweet Tooth Suicides, or the is that who's kind of bringing that? Yeah, those were so songs. Like when me and 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 Dave sat down, you know, I think I untapped something in him because I was able to sing a certain way that he hadn't really sat down with anybody before that could do, I guess, what I could do, and like had you, that kind of an attitude about it. Had, to me, though, to my ear, like that sounds like that's maybe one of your heavier records too. Like pr prior to that, you didn't really sing. Those previous two records weren't as no, heavy or no. as angry as Sound of Madness. But the other thing too was that I was kind of just trying to navigate those first two records. It's interesting, man. A really good friend of mine once told me he was like, "Dude, you'll get your whole life to do your first record, and if your first record's really successful, you'll get about six months to do your next one," which is exactly what happened. So true. And you know, it was it was fast, man. I mean, it doesn't sound fast in the grand scheme of things, but it kind of was. Um, and then, you know, after that second album, I was presented with like, OK, what do I do now? Um, because I had this sound in my head that I wanted. But once again, I was in a situation where I didn't know if the people that I was around could do it. Yeah. And, and are you, know, you going through like drug stuff and the band's not out there with you in LA while you're doing all this? No. The band guys, the Shine Down bands? No. Yeah, just you. No. You, it was just me. Out there, you're just going through. Are you going through? Is this fairly sober though? Like are, during this time, like are you just super focused or is more, like the drug stuff kind of when you're more on tour? The drug element wasn't as predominant in the beginning, but I was definitely drinking, you know, a fifth of vodka a night. Like I was, I was definitely Out drinking a lot. Out yeah. I was drinking a lot. 
Like my mini bar was always filled in the morning <laughs> and always gone in the next morning. So it was always refill, refill. And you're, tra- and you're tracking vocals like that, you bastard? Never, ever, never tracked vocals okay. uh, drunk. Never okay. tracked, never, never, ever walk up on a mic inebriated. Never once. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Never, never, ever do that. Like it was everything like behind the scenes, but also too, um, you know, would write um a bit inebriated sometimes but would have to clear it up the next morning like people often talk like you can't i used to think that i had to be messed up to write messed up stuff right it's not the case mm-hmm. like i will tell you this like the the entire record of attention attention i was completely sober for that entire record like i never i never um not not anything you know amaryllis was going through some stuff still so was still kind of inebriated doing things during that threats of survival i had gotten super healthy during the album cycle for amaryllis but fell off the wagon after like two years of just being completely clean and um had a rough time during threat um got myself back under control during the album cycle of the touring of that record but like when i arrived um to begin what would become attention attention i purposely made sure i was like i'm gonna find out if i can write a record completely sober um and that's what attention attention sounds like and planet zero completely sober the whole record you know i I think it's i think there's a mythology that goes with singers and rock and roll and metal and bands that like you know you were fucked up and you wrote it and that's why it's so good and 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 you know certainly i've believed that and i've even you know I've gone down the I went down that Bukowski route where like, all right, I'm going to get super fucked up. I'm going to do a bunch of fucking crank and booze and then I'm going to go fucking shack up in a hotel and just write the best shit I've ever written in my life. And I remember waking up that next. I mean, it was just this horrible. Like I did. I wanted Coke. I ended up getting speed. And then I fucking. Oh, no. And then I'm just like, fuck. Now I'm just like awake for fucking ever. And I'm like, fuck. And I'm trying to jerk off. I have to go to sleep. And I can't even do that. And I fucking I, I wake up. I wake up and I read all these lyrics. Now I'm sober. And I fucking read everything. Like, you know, three pages of shit. that I, I'm like, this is just fucking garbage like this is just the worst fucking whiny shit i've ever felt like what fuck all this i i i do uh i do find that you know a lot of time the the mythology of that is over exaggerated you know a lot of times it's just you know being in the right sometimes it could just be you fucking waking up in the middle of the night you know just going to take a piss and you got something and it's like i gotta fucking write this down or whatever right I always, man, I tell people too, I'm like, write it down or grab your, vo- grab your voice memo. Like if it comes to you, like, oh, I'll remember it. No, you won't grab it and, and get it quick. Like, you know, if you got to wake up and write the whole thing out and do it right there, just do it. You know? Anyway, I'll, uh, I'll wrap it up. That was, uh, this has been awesome, man. It's been awesome. dude. Thanks so much for giving me all this time. I've had a blast. Yeah, no, it's great talking to you, man. And thanks for sharing all your stories and such, such a fucking such an interesting story, dude. I really, uh, I really dig it. And, My pleasure. Uh, and man. Shout out, shout out your record. Shout out your tour. You got Jelly Roll and uh, coming out. So we got uh, April first. Um, we start with Diamante and the Pretty Reckless. Um, that goes from April first, uh, all arenas in the U.S. till May seventh, and then the record, new record, Planet Zero, comes out on April twenty second, Earth Day, and then we got uh, this fall. 
um, out with Jelly Roll and John Harvey. We're doing Canada in July. Those tour dates are up right now. We're doing uh, Europe and Download Fest uh, in June uh, for all the festivals overseas in Europe and the UK. And then uh, we're getting ready to announce um, Europe and UK headlining tour for November and December. So pretty yeah. stacked. Fucking stat. You're busy, dude. I love it. I love busy. it. Yeah, much success for everything, man. Ladies and gentlemen, right there, the mighty, mighty Brent Smith of the mighty Shine Down. No fucking regrets. No fucking regrets. With Rob Flynn.